So today's sermon text is still in Matthew. We're continuing that series uh, going through the Beatitudes, and it will be given uh, by our lead pastor, Kevin Larson. It should be on page 809 of the Black Bible in front of you if you want. Otherwise, it's on the screen if you would like to follow along there. But if you would please stand as I read God's word. Again, it is Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Kevin, if you want to come up, I'll pray for you. God, thank you for Kevin and just the work that he's put in to prepare this word for us today. We ask that you would give us soft hearts to hear your word, um, that it would speak to us, that we would be uh, comforted, that we would grow in our understanding of you, grow in our understanding of who we are in relation to you, um, and then we would be here challenged and encouraged. God, still our hearts to be able to listen and to focus help us to love you more. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Welcome to Karth. We've been walking through what have been called for a long time the Beatitudes, right? And these verses that are found in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, all start with the word blessed. And it's from the Latin word for blessed where we get that term, beatitudes. And so far we've seen that the blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek. And as we saw last week with Aaron, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But who would our culture say today are those who are blessed? Maybe it would sound a little more like this. Blessed are the confident, those who have all they need. Blessed are the proud, who feel really good about themselves. Blessed are the strong, the assertive, who take matters into their own hands. Blessed are those who go get what they want. Things like fortune and glory. And for this week, it might be, blessed are the tough, those who go and give people what they deserve. Now, isn't that more what our world says? They, they certainly did back in Christ's day. But unfortunately, back then and even today, ideas like those have been imbibed by the people of God. Merciful. Is that what characterizes us as Christians? Would we say that about ourselves? Is that what those around us would say? Well, a recent Ipsos study found that there was this significant disparity between what Christians thought of themselves as compared to what their neighbors thought. People were asked, what are characteristics of Christians? And Christians polled overwhelmingly associated themselves across the board with positive traits, but non-Christians asked, responded quite with the opposite. So 57% of Christians said giving, followed by compassionate with 56, loving with 55, and respectful at 50%. 55 of those identified as non-religious responded with judgmental, followed by hypocritical at 54%, self-righteous at 50%, and arrogant at 36%. Interestingly, those who identified with other world religions, they listed the exact same top four characteristics. Now, certainly some misunderstanding accounts for some of this. Right? Talking about our sin and our need for a Savior, that can rub people the wrong way, but that's the gospel. Right? But it's not only that. It, it no doubt reflects negative experiences that people have had. A word that gets thrown around a lot in America that 
it's very much misunderstood as the word saint. It's often thought of as a super holy Christian, someone who ends up in the church hall of fame. But the Bible calls all followers of Jesus saints over and over again throughout the New Testament. And the word just means those who are set apart from the world and those who are set apart for God. Really, it means holy ones. And we're all meant to be holy. We're all meant to be different. We're supposed to go upstream against the flow. But sadly, too much of the time, that's not been us. We've not been different. We've been the same or worse. Not saints, but aids. With the flow, not against it. And especially during this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad season we've all been through. Does the world look at us and do they say, those people are merciful? Do we shine like stars in the world? Certainly not like we should, but Jesus calls us to something better. Jesus says here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's first look at who this verse calls us to be. Who this verse calls us to be. And that word be there is very important. Jesus is talking about our being here. Not just our doing. Let me explain. Here's the way we generally think about the Bible. And certainly about these Beatitudes. I do things. Activity. And through that I build an identity. We earn it. We prove it through hard work. But Christianity is exactly the opposite. We're given an identity. It comes by God's grace. It's supernatural. We're made a different kind of being by Him. And then we live that out. Our activity flows out of our identity. But this doesn't happen overnight, right? This is also about our becoming. We're called as people. We're given His great mercy. Our doing then gradually looks like our being. We become more and more merciful by His grace. Things that are in no way natural are produced in us by God's Spirit. And as I've said numerous times throughout this walk through the Beatitudes, there's this progression here. As we see ourselves grow, becoming humble and hungry as we've seen thus far, we'll see ourselves more and more just naturally becoming merciful to those around us. Here's a way you can think about it. Often we look at this list here as a scorecard. We check things off. We know how we're doing. But really it's more of a snapshot. It's, it's a portrait of what a Christian looks like. It's just like the school photos, you know, that we've seen in the yearbook. They change gradually over time. We grow, we mature. Well, anyway, back to mercy. What do we mean by that? This is our calling as the saints of God, to live lives, Jesus says, that are merciful. As I said earlier, if we're in Christ, we're saints. That's all of us. But it's not all we are because we live in this fallen world. We're also sinners. Every one of us. As Luther famously said, we're both sinful and righteous at the same time. The sin's not just out there, it's in here, and it comes out through my mouth, through my hands, through my feet. But sin isn't just something that we make happen, it's also something that happens to us in this small world. Well, we're also sufferers. We're sinned against by other humans and even believers. Our bodies are breaking down. God's creation is beautiful, but it's also terrifying. We do hard things, but all the time, hard things happen to us. And that's why everyone here so desperately needs God's mercy. 
But how should we define that word? And how does it compare to grace? Carlos means grace. We talk about grace all the time. What's mercy? John Stott quotes Richard Linsky, who explains that grace, quote, always deals with sin and guilt itself, while mercy deals more with, quote, the results of sin, with pain, misery, and distress. Again, you and I, everyone around us is both a sinner and a saint, and we need help ourselves and to share that help with others. Stott defines mercy in this way that I think is really helpful. Compassion for people in need. Simple, easy to remember. What's mercy? Compassion for people in need. Now, one way that I've heard it stated before, and maybe I've even said up here before, is that grace refers to getting what you don't deserve, while mercy speaks of not getting what you deserve. Have you heard that before? Grace, getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. But as I reflected upon that, I think it's misleading at least three ways. First of all, it gives way too narrow of a definition of mercy. It's just all about the wrongs we've done, and it doesn't encompass the wrongs that are done to us. Second, it makes it all about human responsibility. And it just ignores that in this fallen world, that we will be wronged, that there's systems in place that just hurt us. Third, it's also far too passive of a definition of mercy, because it makes us makes mercy only about not giving something someone to someone. Mercy is something richer. That picture doesn't fit with what we see in Scripture. And of course, what's probably the best snapshot that we see in the Bible of mercy? Well, it's, it's what's called the parable of the Good Samaritan, found in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. I'm going to kind of just talk us through this. So an expert in the Jewish law walks up to Jesus and basically says, how can I be saved? And Jesus says to him, basically, you tell me, you're the lawyer, you're the expert. And the man responds, love God, love neighbors, to which Jesus responds, good job, go do that. Now, the lawyer here, he wants to hear, it seems so clear that his scorecard looks good. So he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor then? You know, tell me this so I feel good about myself. And Jesus responds with this parable, this snapshot of what a follower of Jesus looks like. A Samaritan man who, if you don't know the background, would have been considered an enemy, would have looked, been looked down upon by this Jewish lawyer. This man ends up the hero in the story. And multiple good Jews walk by this man who's just been robbed, who's just left for dead. But the Samaritan man sees the person. He helps him. He has his ears, his eyes open. And verse 33 says that he has compassion. He puts his hands and feet to action. And then Jesus finishes by asking the man, who's your neighbor then? And the guy responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go do the same. And that's what he also says to us. Be merciful. Be merciful. Sinclair Ferguson describes mercy this way, based on this parable. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin, whether his own or that of someone else. Apparently, 82% of people who would call themselves born-again Christians 
believe that the Bible actually says God helps those who help themselves. It's not in there, friends. It's not. It's the exact opposite of what God's Word says. God helps. God only helps those who can't help themselves. And that's us. That's each of us if we're honest. And He wants us to live in that way as well. Going out, helping others, showing His mercy. And this is so important because as we do, we image our Heavenly Father. That's how we're made. If you go back to the beginning in Genesis, we're made in God's image. To image Him, to represent Him out in the world. But in the sinful world, that image it has been marred. Yet He's not going to leave us this way. In Christ, God is transforming us into that image again. And He is mercy. He is mercy. Think about that grand passage in Exodus 34, 6. When the Lord reveals Himself to Moses... And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who he is, and it's also how he lives, how he acts. There's this misconception out there that the Old Testament has this God of anger and judgment, and the New has this God of grace and mercy. But, wow, read the story of Israel. Right? Throughout their story, um, you see God delighting in mercy, as Micah 7 puts it. He meets Israel in her suffering, in her sin, back in Egypt. In the desert, as they're wandering, he sees, he helps. And of course we see this God in the New Testament also. We see it in Jesus. As Dane Orland writes, the posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. After the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 and 7, right in verse 8, as he goes out to minister, we see Jesus, just in chapter 8, cleansing a leper, healing a paralyzed man, raising a dying woman, freeing two men of demons. Jesus talks about mercy. Jesus walks in mercy. And it's what he calls us to and restores us for, for mercy. So what does that look like in your life, in your office, in your classroom, as you go about your day? Where are the sinners? Where are the sufferers? How can you see them? How can you help them? Not just the sinner or the sufferer in the mirror, but those out the window. How can you extend compassion for people in need? What's the way of the world again that we can get so easily caught up into? Get away, get even. Get away from suffering. Go to the other side of the road. Get even with sin. Stay away from it. Maybe stick it to them. But that's not the way of the Christ follower because it is not the way of our Christ. A pastor friend who lives up in New Hampshire named David made national news back in 2009 for showing mercy to a convicted child killer. He was paroled after serving 35 years in prison. And then David welcomed this man, Raymond Gway, into his home to live under his roof for a couple of months as he found a job and got back on his feet. You know, as you can imagine, the, the backlash from the public was intense. This was a small town in New Hampshire. But Raymond had come to Jesus. David had seen the Lord work in his life, so he took this man in. 
Now, that may sound as strange to you and me as it did to those neighbors, the ones who said in the press, quote, don't dump off your trash in our town. It may not be God's calling for your family at all, but all around us are people, people made in God's image who are hurting from their own sin, from other sin, and how are we going to respond to them? You may know the name Corey Ten Boom. She's the author of The, the Hiding Place. She once met one of the men who had put to death her sister, Betsy. Corey was a Christian that helped Jews hide from the Germans before she was taken into a concentration camp herself back in World War II. Years later, she's going around telling her story, and after a speaking engagement, a man walks up to her, he sticks out her hand, she knows who he is, and he says to her, Floyd isn't it good to know that the Lord forgives all our sins? And she talks about how she initially did not want to touch this man. This man had killed her sister, but she did it anyway. And then feelings of great forgiveness then followed, followed that act. They filled up her heart. The God of mercy enabled her to extend mercy. It's one thing to be merciful to someone that you know have, that has hurt others, but what about when they've directly harmed us or our loved one? Will we be like Jesus? Will we say, forgive them? They know not what they do. Will we be merciful? When people see our photo, is that what they'll say about us? That person's merciful. Now, as we've done each week, second, Let's look at what is promised for us. So there's basically an equation here in this beatitude. Blessed, there's a description of a type of person, and then there's a, a promise. What will happen? What does it say here? They shall receive mercy. That's us if we're followers of Christ. But what does it mean? Well, first, it means that mercy is promised to us on the last day and forever. It at least means that. When Jesus returns... If we're in Him, no, we will not get what we deserve. Because for our sin, we all deserve God's judgment. We deserve hell. But if we trust in Christ, His death on the cross paid for our sins. His compassion for us, people in need, sent Him to the cross. And then it sends us into our Father's arms, who's full of compassion, either at our death or on the judgment day when Christ returns. And friends, church, that will be our home forever and ever and ever. We'll dwell in His mercy. We'll praise Him for His mercy. Our sins will be absorbed in Him. All our sufferings will be removed by Him. Amen. And second, it means His mercy is promised to us right now and every day. Because again, I'm just going to keep repeating this. I think this is so helpful. Saints suffer sinners. We too are sinners and sufferers. We need God's compassion, not just down the road, but right here, right now, on this path, because it is hard. Right? Anybody feeling that? It's hard. I love the words we find in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. New mercies every day are promised, and we need them so much. I love the way that the narrator, Reuben, describes it. 
and Lee Finger's novel, Peace Like a River. He says, the weak must bank on mercy, without which, after all, I wouldn't have lasted 15 minutes. Is that your perspective? Are you aware of that? 15 minutes? That's what each of us needs if we're honest. As we utter that difficult apology to a friend, as we walk sheepishly into that medical appointment, as we gaze into the distracted, defiant eyes of our child, as we slip by the cubicle of a difficult co-worker, we need his mercy every second of every day. John Don wrote a long time ago, he says, we are all prodigal sons and not disinherited. We have received our portion and misspent it, not been denied it. We are God's tenants here, and yet here he, our landlord, pays us rents, not yearly nor quarterly, but hourly and quarterly. Every minute he renews his mercy. That's what God promises us. And you know, he will deliver what he promises. It may not look what we think or what we would like. That person may not receive your apology well. Terrifying words may come out of those, that, those doctors' lips. Your kids may scream, I hate you, and slam the door. That coworker may say similar angry things to you behind your back. But Jesus will meet you even there and comfort you with his love and sustain you in his trials. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And his arms are full of mercy. Now, it's us not understanding that reality that keeps us from living it out ourselves. D.A. Carson writes this, The one who is not merciful is inevitably so unaware of his own state that he thinks he needs no mercy. He cannot picture himself as miserable and wretched, so how shall God be merciful toward him? We see this illustrated, of course, in another parable that Jesus tells us. It's one that we'll see and look at in detail later in Matthew, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Peter starts out with this question. He asks, Jesus, um, how many times do I need to forgive? So what's the maximum I have to do here, Jesus, to kind of check things off and be good with you? And Jesus responds... Not seven times, more like 70 times or 70 times, seven times, a lot of times. And then he tells a story again. He's trying to go away from the scorecard and give the snapshot. He tells the story of this master who calls in his servants to settle all their debts. One servant is forgiven by his master this massive debt. And we're talking millions, billions of dollars, today's money. So he's relieved. He's thankful. He walks out. What does he do? He tries to choke a debt out of someone below him. A smaller debt, more like $10,000. The master hears about this. He calls the servant back in. He throws him in jail. And Christ's message in part is, if you don't forgive, that's what's going to happen to you. But his bigger point is so much deeper, so much bigger than that. And it's this, have we realized our massive debt? Have we realized how much we've been forgiven? How great His mercy has been toward us? 
Jesus says, Peter, disciples, all of you who are going to read this, keep forgiving, keep showing mercy, do not stop until you stop needing mercy yourself, which is, of course, never. As we show mercy, we image our Father in heaven, but we also point to his great work in our lives. We point to the gospel. Paul Tripp said it this way, Mercy means I am so deeply grateful for the forgiveness I have received that I cannot help offering you the same. The church, will we receive? We, will we receive the mercy, this mercy from God, and will we just freely share it with those around us? How can we not? How can we not allow His mercy to get so deep in us and allow it to spill out? not easy, but it's what we're called for. I want to turn now to third, what's at stake. And we could have done this with every bet beatitude, but I thought it was maybe especially relevant to this one. Um, what difference does it make if we go with the flow of this world and do not point the way upstream? Well, if you haven't figured this out yet, first, our, salva oh, excuse me, our salvation is at stake. First, our salvation is Again, we do not show mercy in order to be saved. But if we don't, we show that we haven't experienced salvation ourselves. I once heard Russ Moore share a story from his early years when he was pastoring. He was preaching, I'm pretty sure about this verse, if I remember right. And afterwards, a very large, intimidating Vietnam vet approached him after the message, and the man began to go off at Russ about how much he hated the Vietnamese people after his experience in that war, and said there was no way, ever, ever, that he could possibly forgive or extend mercy to those people. So Russ, who's not a big man at all, he would look up at me. He looked up right in this man's eyes, and boldly, with his Mississippi drawl, says, well, I guess there's hell. <laughs> wow. If we're not the type of person who at least struggles, fights to share mercy, we will in no way receive it ourselves. Second, our community is at stake. We have to ask, what type of family do we want to be? What will we become? A place where people are proud and they pound on one another or where we relate to one another with grace and mercy. We're meant to be a community of states, different, set apart from the world. Who wants to be in a place where people are mean, where they run over the weak, where people get judged? There's enough of that out there. God's creating an oasis of mercy in here. I'm thankful for how he's at work here in heart. He's making a city on a hill, a counterculture filled with God's light, a place that understands and understands deeply that we're sinners and sufferers, all of us. And therefore, we long to give each other help. J.I. Packer once wrote, The church is a hospital in which nobody is completely well, and anyone can relax at any time. That's who we are. Don't we want to help each other heal up? Don't we all need greatly that help ourselves? Third, our mission is at stake. So, some of you can relate to this. Imagine that you're evaluating preschools. So you walk into the building, you shake the hand of the director, 
And she begins to take you on a tour. You look into one room and there's this massive brawl going on. There's this kid that's about to throw a chair at another one. You look through another window and kids are running with knives. You see blood on the floor. And the soundtrack for your whole walkthrough is screaming and crying. Are you going to go back there? Are you going to drop your kids off there? No, right? The greatest pitch that we can give for the gospel of Jesus to our neighbors and friends is a family that truly loves one another, that shows one another mercy, right? As we care for one another, as we take the time to patch one another up, we give people around us a picture of the gospel of what Christ has done for us. Back to how I started, if the world around us doesn't think Christians are kind, why would they take us seriously? Why would they listen to us? Why would they hear the words of our dad? At least in my last point about what's at stake. Fourth, God's reputation. Now, don't mishear me. God's not stressed about that. He will be glorified. There's only so much we can mess up. But we're meant to bear his image. And too much of the time, we don't look like him. We've all watched TV shows or movies that are so frustrating where you have these caricatures of Christians, right? And they make me mad. But imagine what our father must think as we're not the best ambassadors much of the time. And we make him look bad. He's got a right to be very angry with us, but again, he's a God of mercy. It's common, of course, that, that people look at one of my boys and they say, you look so much like your dad. And thankfully, they, they don't react too disappointed at that. But um, a snapshot of us should look like him, should look like our father. We're supposed to resemble him in who we are and how we live as people of mercy who share that mercy. Here's one thing you might be asking, though. What about justice, Kev? Justice. We're, we're just talking about mercy. Justice. You know, you mentioned the guy taken in the murderer. What about justice for his crimes? You know, he was in prison for 35 years. But justice, you know, what about that? Last week, Aaron did a great job, and he's doing such a terrific job preaching God's word. Thank you, Aaron. Praise God for Aaron. But he talked about how we as Christians should hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that includes justice. You know, he did a great job with that. And he said that's in our personal lives, but also in the world. We should want to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and that will mean that more and more justice will be seen. And we should long for that. But again, in this fallen world, we look around and there's so much injustice. Right? So much. I know many of you have seen the movie Just Mercy or read the book um, by Brian Stevenson. So he's, he's an attorney. And he saw all the injustice in the justice system, and he tried to do his part to see, as a Christian, more and more justice come here and now. And that, of course, meant with it mercy for the weak, for the poor, for the voiceless, the powerless, the people wrongfully accused, wrongly convicted, wrongly sentenced. In the new heavens and the new earth, injustice will be no more. Right? We'll be enveloped in the mercy of our great God. His mercy will expand as far as our eyes can see. But now, all of us are sufferers. All of us are sinners. We need mercy every moment. And we should long to see and labor to see his mercy around us in increasing measure. Today, tomorrow, until the judgment day comes. 
God is a God of justice. As John Piper puts it, God loves to show mercy. His anger must be released by a stiff safety lock, but his mercy has a hair trigger. That, friends, should be our default posture as well. Mercy. Right? Getting back, getting even, walking away, that comes so naturally to us. God wants to work, so that's our posture. Mercy. And then our gestures reflect that. Because we so richly received his mercy. Today, as Jeff said, the church around the world is celebrating Palm Sunday. We'll get there in, I think, Matthew 21. When Jesus comes through Jerusalem, all the crowds cheer. They lay their cloaks on the ground. They wave their branches before him, and they cry out, Hosanna, God save us. And they're desperately wanting Christ. This is what they're wanting, to come in and kick the tails of their enemies. They want him to come in on a horse and take over. But there comes Jesus on a donkey, meek and merciful, gentle and lowly. I love these words from Dane, or from Dane Orland from his book called Gentle and Lowly. Whether we have been sinned against or have sent ourselves into misery, the Bible says God is not tight-fisted with mercy, but open-handed, not frugal, but lavish, not poor, but rich. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most, make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculated and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Um, it means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we have. You haven't read that book, we got free copies out there, so grab one and for your grandkids, take a bunch. Now Jesus says, this is the blessed life. Receiving the mercy of God, experiencing it in our lives and spreading it, sharing it with those around us. With sinners, sufferers like us as the saints that God should. Here's the main point I will leave you with today. Those who overflow with compassion for the needy experience the fullness of his favor because his kindness will meet their every need. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your kindness in Christ that our lives overflow with mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you remind us in these um, verses um, who we truly are, um, but you don't leave us there um, naked and ashamed and distraught, um, but you just remind us of the promises that are ahead um, for us. Um, your great mercy, Father, um, make us people that are just so renewed um, by that truth of the mercy we've seen that it just has to come out around us um, in our homes, in our workplaces, um, in our classes, um, when we're in the parks, um, when we're working out, wherever we be. 
Um, just give us eyes to see as you have for us. Um, eager to share and extend your love. I pray this in Jesus' name.